Hello. Hi, how's it going? I'm stressed. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I've been applying to grad school. I'm trying to get it done this month, basically every day. been working on applications, writing little statements of purposes. <laughs> Can you use, like, the same ones for different applications or they're all they all have to be different i use the same skeleton but i do change them up a little bit because some of them have different preferences different specialties etc you gotta play the wicked game right that's uh, terrible i do not miss that at all yeah the worst part is a lot of them are like okay we want a sample of your best piece of writing which is fine but they have they all have different length maximums so the best piece of writing I have is probably my thesis, which is, which was 35 pages. I've now cut it down to 30 because nobody allows you to go above 30. But lots of places are like, we need 25. We need 20. We need oh, 15. No. And it's like, how can I give you my best piece of writing in 15 pages? <laughs> That's awful. So I don't think you said, but you're applying to grad schools, right? Yeah. And you're going, you're applying like all over the world, like not even just in the country. Right. Yeah. Where is your like top one that you want to get into? Oh, it's always changing. Uh, <laughs> As of right now, what's today? October 18th at 10.40 a.m. <laughs> yeah, so the the dream would either be, well, there's different motivations for different reasons. Probably the strongest department for my particular interest is Harvard. There's someone at Harvard exa into exactly the same thing that I'm into. But I would also like to get into ancient philosophy more. So I'd like to go to Oxford for that reason. There are closer places to where I am right now. So then I wouldn't have to move, which would be nice. There's Penn in Pennsylvania, which could be cool because then I'd be in Pennsylvania yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> That's my vote. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll go where I get in. That's the thing. They'll have like ridiculous like you know two percent acceptance rates if oh my goodness when do you find out like how long does it take from time you March. apply oh my gosh when's the deadline um it's in december but i want to submit all my applications by the end of october so that my recommenders don't have to try to send recommendation letters to the schools while they're grading finals gotcha that's a good idea and plus then it's just like i i mean for me i like to just get things done yeah so no like i'm looming over forward. my head <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to getting to a point where I'm no longer stressed because I have to do something, but because it's out of my hands. <laughs> right. So yeah. Stressed, but in a different way. Right. That makes so sense. So you're TikTok famous. <laughs> How is that going? Stop it. Not TikTok famous. <laughs> no, I don't know what I don't understand. I it's up to like 4.3 million views. I I truly have absolutely no idea how that happened. But yeah, now I have to like come up with a plan about how I want to like move forward with this. I'm like overwhelmed thinking about it. But yeah, the internet was really invested in finding Mark. <laughs> they found him even. They did. They found him. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. But it is funny because I do have just so many funny like dating stories and just like, you know, whatever. So people seem to be interested in that. So give the people what they want, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you feel pressure now that you're like an influencer? <laughs> I'm not an influencer, Brandon. Oh my God. No, I'm How not. many people did you get to look for Mark? That sounds like influence. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But no, I mean, I feel like I would have to be consistently getting lots of like 
engagement to be considered an influencer. But yeah, there's like 16,000 people following me now or something, which in comparison to other people is nothing. But in comparison to my 100 prior, (laughs) 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 it feels like a big jump. But I have a TikTok account. I follow what? one person, which is you, and you didn't even follow <laughs> me back. <laughs> well, I can't go in there. I'm sorry. I'll go follow you back. I can't even That's see okay. like who's following me or like the comments. I couldn't even keep up with because I figured there was just so many. It was just like, oh my goodness. I was trying to keep up with them at first and then it just took off. And I was like, yeah, this is a full-time job sitting here and trying to read through these things. But yeah, so we'll see. <clears throat> I have another story time I'm going to tell today. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, looking forward to it. I know. <laughs> You're better than I am. I can't believe you read those comments. Not me. Oh, <laughs> no. You know what? That's one thing I'm actually surprised because I wasn't sure how I would handle the haters because there were a lot. Like the, that, the main video got over 5,000 comments. And <clears throat> which in comparison, I'm actually kind of surprised because some of the videos that I was looking at, like that would have like, say, even more views than mine only had like a thousand comments or something. I don't know why this post got so many comments. People had lots of opinions. It was either one way or the other. It was women saying, you go girl, basically a little bit of background story for those listening. I ran into somebody who was cheating on his wife. Long story short, called him out, tried to find him, found him. And people were, women were either like, you go girl, like women supporting women, like way to go for telling the wife. And then the men were like, you should just go die. (laughs) (laughs) basically (laughs) because I am calling this person out so it was like one extreme to the other but anyway I wasn't sure how it handled the like comments people men were being so mean they're like no wonder Mark rejected you I'm like Mark didn't even reject me like I don't even know what you're talking about but that's just mean but it doesn't even bother me because I'm just like dude user 5925 you don't even have a profile photo like I don't care what you have to say about me but anyway right (laughs) I digress yeah I would take it also personally Maybe no, I'm surprised. Yeah. I didn't, but I can see I how mean, you that's would. Definitely for, sure. for the best. Right. No, yeah, I think, like, I know people on the internet. It's not everybody, but there are just a lot of people on the internet who are scummy and mean. Uh, yeah, they're trolls. It's like, I, I can't imagine if I scroll through, if I'm scrolling through any social media platform and I see something that I disagree with, I am not going to go out of my way to comment something rude. Like, I just literally can't even understand why people do that. Right. Like just move along. Like you're taking extra time to say something mean. Like holy bananas. Like I just can't understand it. But hey, you're giving me more engagement, so keep them going. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think there are actually entire people dedicated to making like videos that are supposed to piss people off. So that oh, I'm sure the engagement. You know. Yeah, you get a lot of engagement. I guarantee <laughs> at least half of those comments were mean comments. And I'm just like, great. Thank you so much. Like, you're literally boosting what you are so angry about. Like, good job. Good on right. you. Right. That's why if I, and I don't do this frequently, it's, it's not like, oh, I didn't like this video. I'm going to report it. But occasionally YouTube recommends me videos that I think are really concerning. Like the other day, I literally just got a video that was like super anti-Semitic. It was like, titled, you know, why are the Jews so powerful or something like this? And I was just like, oh my God, YouTube, who do you think I am? Like, why are you recommending me this? Like, sometimes I worry, like the algorithm thinks I'm really bad. But anyway, so I'll like report things like that and say like, this is inappropriate, especially when it's ads. Uh, Right. And that's all I'll do. But yeah, so. Crazy. I've been making 
lots of bread for Halloween. I'm kind of actually, my stomach hurts because I don't ever cook the bread the whole way through because I don't know how to bake. Um, Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to cook or bake. So, hey, how was that? Um, So you were here in Pennsylvania for a weekend for your wedding. I don't not your wedding, a wedding. Let me, let me rephrase. <laughs> um, so how was, what did you get from that? There was a little store by our mom's house that was like all like, what was it, Brandon? I don't even remember. Like, Yeah, it was a bunch of, I think it was sort of a collection of foods from farmers, local farmers. So some of it was meat, some of it was like milk, some of it was honey from bee farmers. Um, and then the place itself makes bread and like bread products. So I got some strawberry jam, which was actually so yummy, and some sourdough bread, which I ended up not being able to eat that much of because I wasn't there, but it was really good. But mom, who is mostly gluten-free, found out that sourdough bread, although it is not gluten-free, has significantly less gluten than normal bread. And so, you know, she really liked it. Oh, nice. That's good. <laughs> And how was yeah. the wedding? Oh, the wedding was great. Um, I ended up <laughs> dancing, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> um, I That's didn't fun. meet many people from high school as I thought I would, but I definitely saw some of them. They're all doing great. They're super nice. Actually, people ended up listening and like jamming out to a musician or like a group, a uh, music producer, I guess, of someone who's a friend of a friend of mine. And Oh, I guess cool. they all went to Firefly and like took some shrooms and went to go see her perform and then, you know, are like in love with her now, which is kind Oh, of funny. Um, yeah. I actually took uh, the friend of mine who got married to see them when she came to visit me in Chicago at like a house show. We saw them on Oh, the second yeah, I floor think I remember of this that. like apartment building. There was a hot tub inside, people in spooky <laughs> ghoul clothing. It was interesting, but That's <laughs> funny. That yeah. sounds fun. Well, I'm glad you had fun. Yeah. Um, do you have any Halloween plans? I think me and Julian are going to dress up as witches, go meet Dana in San Francisco and do a club crawl. What the heck? I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I, um, nope, I don't have any plans like that. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think like we're having a Halloween party, but it's like with the kids and like our like mom friends. Um, yeah, that'll still be fun, though. yeah, it'll be fun. Um, but no, I don't, Gina and I were talking about doing, um, oh man, what did she say? Like yin and yang costumes or something. But I don't even know if we're going to be able to go out because I think we have the kids that weekend. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. But I'm not huge into like Halloween. Oh, yeah. But Oh, are you going to wear a wig? Because I need to see pictures of this. no, no. I basically have everything I need except for the hat. <laughs> Okay. Cool. I'm just going to wear all black. I've got these pants that are kind of witchy. Um, <laughs> I might get like a cheap little like cape and then cool. a witch hat. So Nice. that's the plan. Witchy pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are we doing? Are we finishing up Descartes today? Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> Getting tired of Descartes. <laughs> uh, okay. so today I'm actually just going to talk about the sixth meditation. Um, Okay. in the fifth meditation, Descartes revisits a lot of the themes and ideas we've kind of already discussed. And he tries to establish like more ways to avoid the doubt brought about by the evil demon. He tries to give like another proof for the existence of God. Like, I think it's probably interesting if you're like a super duper Descartes fan, but I 
I'm not going to say there's nothing new in it at all, but I do think it's sort of a recapitulation of what comes before it. And then in the sixth meditation, the thinker and Descartes, I think, finally begin to merge. Like we finally get to see some conclusions, what Descartes actually thinks about things. So that should be fun. Cool. Um, so the sixth and final meditation begins when the thinker once again turns their attention to the existence of corporeal things. And so corporeal things are like bodily things, but Descartes uses it more broadly. He basically means that like, think of it as like things made of matter, like things made of stuff. According to the thinker, the first indication that bodily or corporeal things do exist is our faculty of imagination. And so I think this is a somewhat weird idea. Like if anything, we might expect the opposite because usually when someone says, oh, you know, you're just imagining that, they're trying to say that whatever we're imagining does not exist. So why should the imagination be the thing that first suggests that bodily things do exist? Yeah, that feels so backwards, but it's not at all really shocking given what we know about this person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so of course, like when Descartes uses the word imagination, he means something more precise. Um, there are lots of the ways we use the word imagination or imaginary in our everyday manner of speaking. I just want to give some examples that are not how Descartes uses it. Um, so sometimes, you know, we mean by the word imagination, something like creativity. So like when someone is really good at coming up with out of the ordinary ideas, we call them imaginative. Or when like a kid comes up with a really crazy story, we might say that they have an overactive imagination. We might call a really fantastical film with like lots of world building and characters imaginative. We also definitely use the word imaginary when we want to talk about something that isn't really there, at least not for anyone else. So an imaginary friend is the sort of friend your other friends can't really get to know. We might let a kid know that the boogeyman isn't real by saying something like, you know, oh, don't worry, he's just in your imagination. Actually, when I was a kid, I used to worry about monsters in the night. I don't know if you know that. No. Uh, so I knew they were imaginary because that's what our mom said. But nevertheless, like I was still really scared of them. And I mean, that I think is relatable. Like whenever you watch a horror film or something, you know what you're seeing isn't real, but it's still scary. Well, yeah. But and I think even things that aren't necessarily like imaginary, like things that really do happen, like not monsters, but say, if you're, shark attack. if you're me, I'm scared. Yeah, shark attack, or I'm scared of people breaking into my house or just like, you know, whatever. It's still like, it hasn't happened to us, but it's real, but it's still kind of like in your imagination because it hasn't really happened to you. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And like what you're fearing, yeah, it's not something that you're like seeing. It's like this thing that's playing out in your imagination. Right. Um, so when I was a kid, I figured, well, if the monsters were imaginary, then nothing like should prevent other imaginary things from fighting them off. So I kept my Power Ranger toys near my bed because <laughs> I knew that, like, you know, in my imagination, they were real. So like, you know, it would be like an imaginary thing versus an imaginary thing. And like that would work out for me. And that really gave me a lot of comfort, actually. Wait, that's amazing. Wait, Parenting Hack 101. If your child is afraid of monsters, just tell them that there's bigger, badder monsters that will defeat the bad monsters. Big, good monsters that will defeat the bad monsters. Right, exactly. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> So none of these words uh, or like uses of the word imaginary are really going to capture what Descartes has in mind. 
And in order to understand the use he does have in mind, he invites us to participate in a sort of practical exercise alongside the thinker. So I want you to imagine a triangle. Close your eyes, do your best to envision it. And I think this okay. is interesting. Like I could ask you like, oh, you know, is your triangle an isosceles triangle or a scalene triangle or an equilateral triangle? How big is your triangle? Does your triangle have a color? Does your triangle have any right angles? I think there are lots of questions you can ask about this triangle you're imagining, which is maybe not something to take for granted. Now imagine an octagon and like really draw out the shape in your mind's eye. Imagine it's like a stop sign. Now take away the stop and like just imagine an octagon without the stop sign. So okay. now imagine a shape with 10,000 sides. I can't. Right. Unless you're some kind of genius, you, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a genius. Let it be known. <laughs> yeah, Descartes uses the example of the chiliagon, but I'm not confident that's how that's pronounced. And that's like, I guess, a, a thousand-sided shape. I'm not a fan. So I'm just going to talk about the 10,000-sided shape. Go big or go home, you know? Yeah. So the thinger wants to say that, although we can understand a shape with 10,000 sides, we can't imagine it. So... We can imagine a shape with three sides. We can also understand that shape. So imagination and understanding aren't necessarily mutually exclusive here. It's not like, oh, well, if I imagine something, I don't understand it. And if I understand something, then that means I don't imagine it. It's just that, you know, some of the things we understand we can imagine and some of the things we understand we can't imagine. So whenever the thinker or Descartes is talking about imagination, I want you to think of the activity that we just did that was totally possible when we were dealing with the triangle and the octagon and totally impossible when dealing with something like a 10,000 sided shape. The thinker slash Descartes is often going to refer to this as like, you know, using the mind's eye, like in a way you you really are seeing something like, and I think that's why I was asking you like, oh, imagine it says stop on it. Now imagine it doesn't like the difference between those two shapes is almost visual. And in the next person we'll talk about Hume, um, he has a lot to say about that, which I think is interesting. but. Anyway, so the thinker's next move is kind of a weird one, and maybe you'll disagree with it at first, but I think we can try to understand where they're coming from. So basically, the thinker is going to argue that this power of imagination is not essential to us, that we could totally exist without it. Actually, incidentally, I think there are some people who claim that they can't imagine things, that they can't picture things in their head in the way that Descartes is using the word imagine. That's not to say they're not like creative or not capable of coming up with stories or situations or anything like that, but just like that act of picturing with the mind's eye, I guess some people say that they can't do that. I uh, wouldn't say that I can't do it, but I definitely, I, I do not have like a very big imagination. I'm very like in that way, if it's not happened to me, like I have a hard time picturing it or thinking about it or yeah, imagining it. Like I'm not somebody who, I never would have been said like, oh, she has an overactive imagination. Like never, <laughs> never. Right. <ever. laughs> Well, and I think like some people are better than other people at like manipulating the shapes in their head or like the things that they're imagining. So like if, you know, I show you a shape and then I ask you like, okay, what does it look like when I rotate it 90 degrees? Some people are going to have an easier time with that than other people. Um, so, and, and I think that's like a similar sort of thing. So I guess if some people are better at it than other people, I wouldn't be surprised if some people are almost in, or entirely incapable of doing right. it. So I think saying that this is not like essential to us might sound sort of like a hot take until you remember that the us that the thinker has in mind 
is this weird us solely insofar as we're thinking things. Just to go back to that, like the rich myriad of experiences and sensations and feelings and passions and goals that we have, that's not what Descartes thinks constitutes what we are. Rather, we are thinking things at bottom. Of course, we have all these other things, but at bottom, we're thinking things. And so imagination is not essential to thinking, or that thinking does not require imagination. And I do think this makes sense. You pointed out last episode that we can think about a million dollars. We can think about what right. would happen if we doubted it, if we spend like, you know, a, you know, such and such amount of it. But we can't imagine a million dollar bills. Um, right. We can imagine a giant stack of money, like the one the Joker burns in the Batman movie, if you know, you know. But it would be perfect <laughs> to say, um, it would be weird to say that like what we imagine when we imagine a big stack of money couldn't also be like, you know, 1.1 million dollar bills. Like nobody has like a super precise, like that stack isn't very precise. Um, right. So I think like after a certain, oh, geez. After a certain point, we stop imagining like collections of individual dollar bills and we start imagining, you know, a lot <laughs> like, right. like, oh, it's a ton of them. So since this power of imagining doesn't necessarily belong to ourselves insofar as we understand ourselves in this like weird Cartesian way, like it follows that like since we do in fact have the power to imagine, this power should come from something distinct from us. It doesn't follow from us insofar as we're thinking things. So it follows from something else is what Descartes going to say. The thinker decides that perhaps this power of imagination comes from our bodies. So if our bodies do exist, then maybe this power comes from them. The thinker doesn't necessarily see anything wrong with this conjecture. They can't immediately dismiss it. And so they accordingly conclude that the body might exist. So <laughs> the thinker takes their power of imagination to be a sort of like indication or a hint that the body might exist. But ultimately, the thinker is kind of stubborn on this, hard to convince, and doesn't think that we're re like really ready to conclude that the body exists just because we can imagine things, because maybe the imagination could come from some other source. So the thinker continues to consider imagination in an effort to see where it comes from. So they point out things that we often imagine. So things like colors, smells, sounds, tastes, feelings. In other words, we often imagine sensory things. And although this seems like an obvious point, it's worth noting that I think this is kind of a miraculous ability. It's the sort of thing like philosophers really go nuts about, like what exactly is going on when we imagine what something sounds like? Like, do you hear anything? Like, nope. no, not really. But in another way, kind of like if I tell you, like, imagine the sound of like a dog barking. Now imagine the sound of a cat meowing. There's a difference in what you imagined. It's not necessarily something you heard, but the thing you imagine, those things sound different. And like in your right. imagination, they kind of sound different. So it's it's hard. It's hard to speak about this kind of thing with precision. And this strange connection between the imagination and like the senses is going to serve as a point of departure for Descartes. The thinker is like going to take this as a cue that, okay, we've got to investigate the relationship between the imagination and the senses. So what we're going to do is we're going to start thinking about the senses. So the first thing the thinker notes is that it seems we don't really get to choose what we sense. And I think I talked about this last episode when talking about finitude um, and like how we're limited. So, I mean, I can ask you to think about anything really. 
uh, all I have to do is like say the word, like think about a book, you know, but I cannot expect you to be able to like hear something or smell something on command. I can't just say like, see a book, unless there's a, right. a book around you, you're not seeing the book, at least most people. Um, so the thinker says that it's because what we sense is out of control. And because that, like what we sense is out of control, it seems like we sense things that are not us. So this, this idea that like, well, whatever is intimate to us is within our power is within our control. So whatever is outside of our power doesn't really care about us. That's probably not us. That's probably separate from us. So the thinker contends that whatever can be separated, at least in principle, must be distinct. So this is kind of like a weird move and Descartes likes to use the word distinct a lot. So the mind and the things it senses, since the mind can be conceived separately from the things it senses, are distinct. And this is where things get crazy, since the body itself, the human body, is, at least according to Descartes, perceived through the senses. So the human body is really distinct from the mind. And according to Descartes, whatever is corporeal or bodily is extended or measurable. And I mean, maybe this doesn't seem so striking. I think, you know, after all, we live in Descartes' era and nothing seems more natural than this distinction between the mind and the body. And like, of course, ideas about the separation between the body and the soul are ancient. And it's not like Descartes is the first to say that the mind and body are different in some sense. But this fundamental distinction between thought and what is sort of extended or measurable based on the fact that the knowledge of one doesn't require the knowledge of the other is definitely new. And this is one of those cases where I think it's hard to necessarily see how big of a deal this distinction is. But if you try, you will notice that people make use of it all the time. So, I mean, it's hard to think of examples on the fly, but basically, like whenever somebody is like, oh, you know, I'm not meaning to feel this way, like my body is just being obnoxious, or like, you know, oh, don't judge the person by their body, judge them by their character. Like, I think we are all the time making these separations. <clears throat> Sorry. No, yeah, I totally agree because I was just actually thinking about a situation um, or a lot of times you'll hear people talk about, I've had this experience before where it's like your body reacts in almost like a confusing way. And it's almost like something in your, I don't really know, like your intuition or whatever is telling you that like this situation is bad or like people will always say, trust your gut, which is like so interesting to really think about because how does your body sense that something is going on or something is wrong when really you're looking around and everything seems fine. And you're just like, wait, like, why am I feeling this way? I've had this happen to me a lot this year. Um, and I've, you know, really started to lean into trying to trust my intuition and trusting my gut. Um, but it is just really interesting when everything seemingly is okay, but your body's like run, <laughs> like it's not okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, totally. But I think before Descartes, people would say, well, like kind of like what you said, like, well, your intuition is that something is off or, you know, you don't have a good feeling about this. But Descartes is going to say the body doesn't have a good feeling about this. And it's only after Descartes that I think people start to talk about it, like in that sort of distinct way. Like on the one hand, my body is telling me one thing and my mind is telling me another. That sort of distinction is Descartes' distinction. 
And this is one of those things that I think is really fun about reading the history of philosophy is because that distinction makes 100% total sense to us. And I think the reason it makes sense to us is because for the last 500 years or whatever, people have been thinking according to how Descartes taught us to think. So for 500 years, people have been describing our feelings and our behaviors and the relationship between our mind and our body in this sort of way. And so I think the phenomenon you're describing, namely this, like, you know, I've got a really bad feeling about this, like my gut is telling me, you know, this isn't right. I think that that is a totally real serious phenomenon. And I think it's, you know, probably a good idea to trust it. And I actually think Descartes surprisingly might think so too. But the I don't think that we necessarily have to think of that idea as a separation between our mind and our body. I think we can. I don't know that it's immediately clear there's anything wrong with that. But I just want to flag that I think this is that this is really the reason I say one of the reasons I say we're in Descartes era is because this distinction still makes sense to us. Well, I think it's interesting because correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Descartes kind of says that we can almost um, not trust the senses sometimes. Like he has that notion that like we can't trust what we see or hear or feel or but or not, you know, feel like actually tangibly, but that would make sense because if, like I said, if like, you know, you're in a situation, just say, for example, I'm standing in a parking lot and I'm looking around and everything seems fine. Nothing looks out of place. I don't see any crazy white vans that are scaring me. I don't see any people that are scaring me, but I feel like the hair stand up on my arms. Like mm -hmm. it's like, I feel this visceral reaction that doesn't really make sense based off of what I'm seeing. So yeah, it makes, I mean, that would fit with what he's saying. Like you can't always trust what you're seeing. Right. Exactly. And I think, yeah, like when you say like the hair standing up on end or this almost just like fear, like this is not something you necessarily sense. And Descartes, like as we'll see, like towards the end of the meditation, I think actually starts to talk about what goes on in that sort of situation with a bit more detail. And so I want to get to that when we get to that, but definitely bear that in mind. Um, so since the thinker sort of comes at this like conceptual distinction, the thinker is going to make this move where they're going to say that like, well, a thinking implies there's a thinking thing. And the fact that we perceive extended things implies there are extended things. And I, I and I want to say this more precisely, actually, because I, I kind of said something that is not exactly correct. Really, the thinker says that because there are extended perceptions, those perceptions of extension inherit in something extended. And this is like a weird philosophy maneuver that I want to take a second to think about because Descartes is going to talk about this in terms of substance and modes. And these are two terms that I think are worth going into, actually. Um, so I want to take some time to talk about these two words, and we're going to take a big detour. Um, I actually ended up teaching a class to some high schoolers on the history of the concept of the word substance over one summer. It's a pretty like esoteric topic. I think uh, people often laugh when I say that I taught high schoolers this subject because it really is like a weird one, but I think they digged it and I think it's kind of interesting. So the word substance comes from a Latin translation of the Greek word usia. And in particular, it's a translation of Aristotle's use of the word usia. So about 25, 26, 2700 years ago, I can't do the math properly, a philosopher named Parmenides Parmenides comes before, you know, Plato, Aristotle, before Socrates. So 
Parmenides really early philosopher, one of the earliest. Maybe some people would even say the earliest, the first philosopher. Uh, that's controversial, but some people say it. So about 2,500 years ago, Parmenides introduces a puzzle about change. And this puzzle, in order for it to make sense as a puzzle, in order for it to grip you, you have to do some mental gymnastics. And I think that's what I like reading about the ancients so much is this puzzle doesn't make sense to me at all at first. Like, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. So he argued that change is impossible. Um, and so <laughs> his argument runs in a weird way. He says, change cannot be a movement from what is to what is or from being to being. For then there's no change. So if something is, and it still is, no change, you know? So that's not change. So the next option is, what if it goes from what is to what is not, or from being to non-being? Well, that's not really a change in anything. That's like an annihilation. Like now we're no longer dealing with anything that changed at all. It disappeared. So there's no change. And change cannot be a movement from what is not to what is, or from non-being to being, because that's like a creation from nothing. That's, you know, a change without a cause. That is a, you know, sudden appearance of something from nothing. And Parmenides is going to say that that's impossible. So for those reasons, change is impossible. The only three options are from what is to what is, from what is to what is not, or from what is not to what is. And none of them are change. So Parmenides is like, what gives? There's no change. So I want to use an example of a green apple and a red apple. So Parmenides is concerned about how this green apple becomes a red apple. So, and I think that this line of questioning kind of makes sense. But for us, it almost seems like, you know, obvious that we're missing something. But for Parmenides, I mean, he's the first philosopher. He's a really serious guy. And this is a really serious question. So... How does the green apple become a red apple? What happens in particular to the green apple? Does the green apple like suddenly vanish? No longer like, okay, like first we had a green apple. I come back a day later. Now it's red. What happened to the green apple? Where did it go? Did it stop being? And now what about this red apple? Where the heck did it come from? Did it suddenly, you know, come to be from nothing? Because it didn't come to be from the green because it's not the green. So that would be a case where it's coming to be from what it isn't. And the green apple doesn't become the red apple because it's not the red apple. So that would become a case where the green apple is becoming what it is not. So what is the green apple would have to become what is not, which is the red apple, because when the apple is green, the red apple doesn't exist. So this question is really important for Plato and Aristotle. And I think, honestly, I would say that this question leads to the creation of philosophy as we know it and like science as we know it and the way we think about basically everything. And the answer to this question almost seems like an obvious answer or like a well, duh sort of answer. And I think it's important to note that not only is this answer not obvious so that the, the answer I'm about to give was sort of invented. But this answer is one particular answer, and there might be more than one answer. And in fact, different people in ancient Greece gave different answers. But the history of philosophy, sort of by accident, decided to go with one of them. So the answer that everybody went with was Aristotle's. And I mean, I think that we really are still going along with this answer. 
Aristotle tries to answer the question in a way that, you know, is super decisive. And he says that we have to distinguish between what changes and what undergoes the change, or between what changes and what does the changing. So Aristotle, let's think of the green apple, says, no, the green and the red, or the green apple and the red apple are in a way, like they exist in a way, but also in another way, they fundamentally are not, like the green and the red in particular, in one way are not. Because if we say that the green, the greenness and the redness are being full stop, then sure, Parmenides' paradox continues. So Aristotle wants to say that if we consider them on their own, then sure, they exist. But if we consider them as properties or accidents of the apple, then, like properly speaking, it's the apple that exists, while the colors green and red are just accidents of it or manifestations of it or properties of the apple. So Aristotle says, for the first time, that when something changes, when there's change, something changes. For the first time, we have this notion of something and then its properties. I think that the relation between something and its properties is so fundamental to the way we think, it's sort of impossible to put ourselves in a position where that's not how people were thinking about things. It seems very obvious to us that, you know, like, okay, if you learn an instrument, you don't become a new person. It's the same person, now they know how to play an instrument. Or like, you know, if you get a haircut, you know, you don't, you don't suddenly pop out of being and pop into being like, you know, so this is the first time that we think of something or that, that there is something like something that persists throughout change. And I really do think that, yeah, no, I mean, for me, this is just amazing that this is something that is invented. This to me seems like the sort of thing that is so fundamental that it's almost impossible for us not to think of things this way. I mean, heck, even adjectives. Like, we can think of a thing and then describe lots of things about it. The grammar of adjectives, that didn't exist. Like, that was also invented by Aristotle. Right. <laughs> um, and this, for Aristotle, was really important to his analysis of language. Like, Aristotle liked to think of predicates, and that's how we describe things. So, like, predicates are like, you know, this book is green. This book is the meditations on first philosophy. This book is written by yada, yada, yada. So like we have, we have lots of things to say about this book and all these things are properties of this book, but the book itself, this thing before us, that is something that does not, I mean, it does change, but it's the thing that does the changing, but it itself, the usia, that thing does not change. It undergoes the change. Yeah, and I mean, for me, I just want to repeat, I can't believe that somebody invented this. This, for me, when I was reading this, was amazing. Well, it's shocking because it's like, how do you, you can't imagine a world in which this didn't exist. Right. Like, you wonder how did people describe things or how did people communicate prior to this existing? And who just, like, how how did this even come into being that one day somebody was like, oh, like, this makes sense when for us it's just natural and innate. Yeah, so I have a question for you then. Um Let's say, you know, you see me playing the bassoon, uh, you know, <laughs> Lore, Amanda and I used to play the bassoon. <laughs> yeah. She was better at it than I was. Um, I only did it cause she did it. The freaking bassoon, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I hated that thing. <laughs> I only ever awful. played big instruments, so I never took them home on the bus and I never learned how to play any of them. But, <laughs> um, but okay, so like if you see somebody and let's say like, okay, we're going to say like, wow, that person is so musical. 
they're over there playing the bassoon. They're so musical. They get up, they're talking to you. I'm still going to say like, you know, Amanda, that person is so musical. Where's the musical? Do you see it? Nope. No? <laughs> no. So it seems obvious to us that we would think of like, well, we've got this person and they're also musical. But that division is not necessarily always clear. Or let's take a, a consideration at a green book. Or if you look at the color of your laptop. Do you see two things, the color and the laptop? Or do you just see the laptop? I think I would say that's a silver laptop. Yeah. But do you see two things or one thing? No, one thing, yeah. One thing, exactly. So I'm not going to say that, you know, here's a refutation of Aristotle because Aristotle is way more advanced than this. But I do want to say that maybe, just maybe, this division is not as natural as we might expect. Because if you think about it, you don't really see this division. It's not the sort of thing that presents itself obviously to you. Because what you see is a person, not a musical and a person. Or you might see a musical person, but not a musical and a person. Or you right. see a silver laptop, but not silver and a laptop. You see a silver laptop, like you said. Right. And in another case, what's the property of um, making an omelet? Does that have properties? Does that exist? Is that being? Can that change or not? I think that that sort of thing... It's yeah, harder for Aristotle to talk about. Well, yeah, because I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm like, do you mean like the process of making the omelet or like just the, the, the notion of making an omelet? Exactly. We struggle to talk about this sort of stuff more because Aristotle didn't give us the vocab for it as easily. <laughs> Dang it, Aristotle. <laughs> um, really, though, like I think that's a lot of why we struggle to talk about it. Um, the scholastic philosophers translate usia as uh, substance. And the terms are slightly different, but we don't need to worry about that too much. So like the scholastics are going to say that like, well, we've got all these substances, we've got all these things. So what exists, the beings are things. We've got, you know, a laptop, that's a substance. The laptop can decay, it can get older, it can, you know, we can mod it, we can change it, whatever, whatever. And in another sense, uh, maybe like, you know, one of the keys on the laptop is a substance. Like the substance is a thing, basically for the scholastics and it's the thing that exists and that's like where the being's at like if you want to find the being it's in the substance is what the scholastics will say and this prioritization of things over say something like making an omelet or even things that don't necessarily stand before us and are like harder to talk about like maybe like happiness for instance this prioritization of things as where the beings are is really important for philosophy. And I think it takes a long time for people to realize that like we've been prioritizing things too much and like not really taking note of like intentions or feelings or something like that. Um, but uh, anyway, let me, <laughs> let me go back to where we were at. Descartes <laughs> is going to revolutionize the term once again. For him, it's gonna change. So for Descartes, Substance becomes something related to knowledge. And I mean, this is the theme we see with Descartes again and again and again. It always comes back to knowledge for Descartes. So substance becomes something that cannot be understood by means of anything else or something that all our other knowledge like inheres in or presupposes. So for him, all the various bodily things presuppose extension. 
the concept or ideas of extended things always involve extension. And by extension, I just mean like length, like if you're going to like extend something out. Um, our ideas, insofar as we're purely thinking things, do not involve extension. So, I mean, this is the same point we talked about earlier with the difference between understanding one million and understanding a triangle. In a way, I think Descartes wants to say that when you imagine something like a triangle, if you're picturing it in your mind's eye, it has extension. Like, it has width. You could divide that triangle in your mind in half. Um, now, modes for Descartes, so we've got substance, and now modes are the way in which substances are. So instead of properties, Descartes is kind of going to say that the extended substance exists in many ways. And those ways of being, those ways of existing, are its modes. So for with Descartes, you don't necessarily say, well, that's an apple with the property green. Rather, that's an extended thing, an extended being in the mode of a green apple. So I want to kind of come back to what I was saying about the substance stuff. So the thinker is going to say that since we see lots of modes of extension and these modes of extension are not within our power, um, you know, if they were like, we could easily be rich. We could just like command lots of money. <laughs> the substance <laughs> in which these modes are must be a substance separate from us. So the substance, therefore, either comes from God or else it really is what it seems to be, which is like a bodily material substance. And we don't want to say, though, that God is like a deceiver, that we merely think that there's this material substance because God tricks us into thinking that there is. And therefore, the thinker concludes that the material substance really exists. So finally, we finally have this dang body. We got it back after a doubting hit. <laughs> um, the body exists. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> We're all on a freaking simulation. <laughs> Yeah, no, even the simulation idea only made possible by Descartes, because now we, in order to think that we're in a simulation, we have to sort of think, well, our minds are real, or like what we're experiencing is in some sense real, but everything else is simulated. So oh like, gosh. even even the simulation idea is a Cartesian one, and is really only made possible by someone like Descartes. Um, so the thinker is going to investigate the relationship between like thought and extension or between mind and body. Um, and they're going to focus on a particular type of material thing or body, which is their own body. You know, that one's pretty close to us, pretty intimate. So, you know, I think the thinker wants to concentrate on this one because there's almost like a special relationship between ourselves and our bodies. Like it seems maybe less clear that the body is separate from us. And like, I think that we, you know, like we said, we do have a way of thinking where like my body is telling me something that like I didn't necessarily know, or even like in a more rudimentary way, like if our stomach makes a weird noise, like, oh, well, that's just my body, you know, doing right. body things. Um, but the thinker is going to kind of famously talk about the relationship between a person and their body by comparing it to the relationship between a sailor and a ship. And in particular, they're going to say that it's not the same kind of relationship. And I think this is really interesting because there's a way of thinking about the mind and the body as like, well, I tell my body what to do. Maybe not directly. Obviously, nobody commands like each of their individual muscles to do every little thing. But like, I think there is a really fundamental sense in which, you know, you might think like, well, you know, I told you to go get the bag of chips. 
you got up and you got the bag of chips like or like you decide like i'm gonna do this and then you get up and you go do it like so there's a way that people used to talk about the relationship between the mind and the body by talking about it's like the way that a sailor guides a ship like that the mind is navigating this vessel which is a ship and descartes going to say it's not that that's the relationship we have with other things that's the relationship we have say with a ship <laughs> or uh with like a car or with like a pencil like it's like that's how we think of like tools that we're using we command them we tell them what to do but ultimately when a sailor is guiding a ship they're not like feeling the ship and so Descartes will say like if a ship is damaged the sailor doesn't like feel pain you know like if you if you yeah, yeah if you blow up part of a ship the sailor isn't like ow like it's not a voodoo right. doll um right. whereas like yeah when the body's damaged unless you're paralyzed you feel that um yeah so the thinker is going to say that okay so this this pleasure this pain this is really important to our bodies like our bodies our bodies are different from other things because our bodies communicate to us pleasure and pain whereas we don't feel pain in a mouse or like in a book or something like that like right. that's not our pain so what makes our body our body seems to be the this pleasure and pain part um and you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, the thinker is kind of suspicious <laughs> um, because they want to say that, you know, nature teaches us through the senses that lots of things exist, that some things are beneficial and pleasant, and that some things are harmful and painful. But in a classic Descartes move, they're going to point out that there's a lot of cases when something seems one way and turns out to be another. So the example they use here is that they perceived empty space when they didn't see anything occupying it, but now they know that like air is there. So while the senses are decent at letting us know when something might be pleasant or painful, they're not really reliable sources of judgment. And I think this is exactly what you were saying, like just because like something seems normal or looks normal doesn't mean that something else isn't going on. And like, maybe actually the body is trying to communicate to you like, well, there is something going on or maybe it's not, but like, you're not always going to, to know everything that's going on in a situation via your senses. They're going to sometimes make you afraid of something potentially painful when you don't need to be. Um, so this might be like, say you have like your arm numbed, you know, your arm is numb and someone's about to give you a shot or something, you know, you're not going to feel it, but like, you're still like freaked out, like by the shot or something. Yeah. Like, you can still be afraid that something might hurt you, even if you know that it won't. Um, yeah. or like, I think a classic case is like, if you have a lighter and somebody like flicks their finger through it really fast, it's like mm -hmm. scary to do that, even though, you know, it's not going to hurt because, right. you know, it's so instilled in you don't touch the fire. Like the fire is usually painful. So. Basically, I think this is a deeper point about the order of our knowledge. So Descartes wants to say that we don't learn from our senses, which suggests all sorts of false things. We learn to judge correctly about the things that we sense. And at the same time, like the thinker realizes, you know, that this seems kind of suspicious because it seems like God might be deceiving us or that God's creation is deceiving us. Like, why is it that sometimes our bodies lead us one way when something isn't going to be painful? Or why is it that like we aren't always correct about our judgments of what's going to be beneficial or what's going to be harmful? 
and like why is nature teaching us improperly basically if nature is supposed to be god's creation and so here i want to read descartes correctly i'm going to read something that i think he's eventually going to take issue with but i think it's important because it also just shows you the weird way that descartes thinks about bodies um he writes a clock constructed with wheels and weights observes all the laws of its nature just as closely when it is badly made and tells the wrong time as when it completely fulfills the wishes of the clockmaker. In the same way, I might consider the body of a man as a kind of machine equipped with and made up of bones, nerves, muscles, veins, blood, and skin in such a way that, even if there were no mind in it, it would still perform all the same movements as it now does in those cases where movement is not under the control of the will, or, consequently, of the mind. I can easily see that if such a body suffers from dropsy, for example, and is affected by the dryness of the throat, which normally produces in the mind the sensation of thirst, the resulting condition of the nerves and other parts will dispose the body to take a drink, with the result that the diseases will be aggravated. So the point of this example, first of all, actually, I want to stop and say that I think dropsy is supposed to be some sort of disease that makes you thirsty, but, you know, you're not supposed to drink water, like drinking water is harmful to you when you have dropsy, but it makes you really oh, well. thirsty anyway. At least that's what I think based on this example. Um, but I think this example is supposed to say that, well, we don't have to think that God is deceiving us or doing something wrong, like just because we're not learning from nature properly. Like we might be sort of like that clock that tells the wrong time, but is still following all the laws of nature. I think Descartes going to have a problem with this for a few reasons, one of which would be like, well, God should make a pretty good clock. Like, why, yeah. why would he make a faulty clock? Right. Um, and he's also going to talk about like, well, there's two senses of the word nature here and all of that, but we don't necessarily need to go into that. I just want to say that I think the reason I wanted to read this is because even though Descartes is going to take issue with this, we see here the weird way Descartes thinks about the body. Like he calls it a machine that... Right you know, receives impulses, activates nerves, like basically acts like a robot that like may or may not communicate to us like how it feels or something. And I really do think a lot of people think of the body in this way today. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because, you know, we're in such an age where, which I'm as difficult as it is to raise a daughter in today's society and as scary as it is, the one good thing that I've always said is that we're becoming a lot more body positive and people are speaking a lot more, um, you know, there's not the insane beauty standards that there used to be for women and men, honestly, and men nowadays are speaking more about their insecurities with their bodies as well. You know, before it was always like men just don't talk about that. Anyway, my point is that I think that it's interesting now, even me with my running, it's like I literally talk to my body. <laughs> like when I'm running, I'm like, you're doing great. Like, good job. Thank you for getting me through this. Like, because Honestly, my body, I've always said about running, my body is ready. I've been running running for four months consistently and my body has the endurance. It's my mind that struggles. Like if I get bored or I feel like I can't finish, I remind myself like, no, your body is doing this. Your body, I look at my legs sometimes when I'm really like struggling to finish and I'm like, nope, my legs are still moving. Like everything is still working as it should. Um, it really is kind of like a machine. It's like, nope, it's doing great. Now I have to take care of it though. Like I have to drink a lot of water. I have to eat the right things. I have to stretch, which I hate doing. Um, but I have to do those things for it to work properly. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no. So I want to, I want to say two things. One is about like body image. 
And I do think in cases of body image issues, you do often, I think, tend to see your body as like this, like other thing, like this, like adversarial thing, like, gosh, like, I know for me, it's like, why isn't like, I look in the mirror or something, or I look at my body or my stomach or something. I'm like, why aren't you skinnier? Like, why aren't you the way I want you to be? Like, I look at it in like this way that makes it sort of like other. And I also want to say that even though like, I, I agree with you about like this way of thinking about the legs, just for the sake of being the devil's advocate, I want to push back and say like, okay, well, if you're looking at your legs and they're still going and you're running and you're convincing yourself, why is it that you have to convince your mind and not just convince yourself to keep running? I think there's a way to talk about it where like, well, you're just, you're just pepping yourself up. Like you're telling yourself you got to keep running, but you don't necessarily have to make this division. Like even if your legs like could keep handling it, if your mind can't, let's dissolve that distinction and say, instead of saying the mind can't do it, maybe your body isn't as ready as you thought. If you include like the way that you engage with yourself and view yourself as like a bodily thing. Cause some people like are going to say it's all body the whole way down. And some people are going to say it's all mind the whole way down. And so like, yeah, no, I definitely think it's a combination of both. Don't get me wrong. If I go out and I try to run a full marathon, like that's never going to happen. My legs are not going to do that. That is something I am not capable <laughs> of. I'm more referring to the fact that I run consistently five miles daily, if not, and then more on like one day out of the week, I'll run like, you know, 10 plus when I'm running and I'm at mile two and I'm like, I can't possibly do this. I know that's not true. I know that I can do this. It's that I am just for some reason having like a rough day where I'm just like, I don't feel like doing this, but it's not that I can't. It's just that I don't want to. So I think in those moments, I'm like, okay, focus on the fact that like, you know, you can do this. And it's not that I'm in pain. It's not that I'm like ignoring my body because I've tried to do better at that. So I don't get injured. Like if I really am sore or like just not, I'll, I'll shorten my run. Um, but I'm talking on the days that I'm perfectly fine. Really. It's just that I'm like, I feel like I want to be lazy and I don't want to do this. I'm like, no, like you can do it. Um, yeah. Like your body is capable, but. And I, and I, and like, yeah, it's tough for me to be the devil's advocate. Cause I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's obviously very relatable, but philosophers are weird. And so like someone right. like Nietzsche or maybe even Hume, but probably I'm going to stick with Nietzsche might say, well, okay, like let's take the situation where you're running two miles and you just stop. Like you just, you know, you've been running 10 miles every other day or whatever, like you're obviously capable of doing that. But one day you run two miles and, you know, you just can't do it anymore. I think there's a temptation to say that it was a problem in the mind. But Nietzsche is going to say something along the lines of like, well, that's sort of like a conclusion that we make after the fact. But like, we don't necessarily see any problem with the mind like that is involved with all sorts of, you know, potentially misleading ideas and like historical constructions because Nietzsche is really interested in trying to investigate say the history of philosophy and how it informs how we think about things and so instead let's say that what was actually going on is that you know your body was just having like bad tempers like it was just in a bad state that day and that included like how you felt about your mind and I think one way that you can see where that's relatable is Sometimes when say like your body didn't get enough sleep or something, or you didn't go to bed, or, like for the entire rest of the day, you could describe it as well. Obviously I know I'm capable of doing all the things I need to do today. I do that every day, but so it's really just like a mental thing. I just need to push past it. But someone could also say that the reason you're having this mental issue is because of an issue with your body because you didn't yeah. get enough sleep or something. Yeah.
So I don't know which one I believe or which way one is the other. I just wanted to be devil's advocate here. Yeah, no, I, I, and I honestly, I just like most things in life, I feel like it's probably both. Like, it's like one day it could just be that I'm literally feeling lazy and I don't want to do it. And the other day it could be that my body is actually fighting something. I'm getting sick. Who knows? Like, it, I mean, it could be both. Exactly. And that's the great nuance of life. Like, how do you tell the difference? How do you, like, I'd like to think that I've gotten better at even like mental health wise, knowing when, you know what, I just need to take a day, like a mental health day, watch bad TV and just do nothing. And like, that's okay. Um, obviously we can't do that every day, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, but it's just like trying to learn the difference and know the difference of like when you're just being lazy and when you're, you genuinely do just need rest. Yeah. And I think in the field of, uh, like clinical or like medical psychology, like this division, as far as treatment goes, I think is really important. Like for some people, it's like always a question of like, well, what do you need? Like pills or therapy or maybe both or like, which both. is going to be more helpful <laughs> for you <laughs> and like that sort of thing. Me personally, I just want the pills. Give me the pills. But yeah. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Numb the pain. <laughs> right. I don't want to deal with the pain. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um... Well, the pill, I mean, this is a, I could go on about this for days, but the pill isn't going to fix the problem. The pill is only going to put a bandaid on it. And then when you stop taking the pill, you're right back to square one. Both is the most effective in a lot of cases because it's addressing the problem, but it's also giving you the ability to address the problem because if you're in such a bad state, it's really hard to address anything in talk therapy, you know, so the pills help with that anyway. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, like, give me the pill first. So I'm not like in constant agony or whatever. Right. So then like, I'll start working on stuff. But like, you know, like, I need a more immediate solution right now than like working on it long term, and then I'll work on it long term sort of thing. Right. Um, so I want to just Continue so we can finally finish Descartes because there's one more thing that goes on in the last meditation. Okay. So the thinker is going to be like, how, you know, how could God allow us to be deceived by our bodies? And the thinker is going to make a weird argument. So I'm going to summarize it first and then go over each point. The thinker says, the mind is different from the body. The mind is not immediately affected by the body, just small parts of the brain. Whenever one part of a body is moved by another distant part, the same movement can be brought about by moving an intermediate part. And the body can only communicate one thing to the mind, so it goes with what is most frequent. Let's take that apart, because it's a weird argument. Um, the first point, which was uh, that the mind is different from the body, this is one we've already discussed so much, but I just, I'm going to touch on it a tiny bit more. So the thinker says that the differences between the mind and the body is most marked by the fact that the mind is indivisible, while the body is always divisible. Anything that has length can be divided. You can always divide matter, and you can even divide that triangle that you imagined in your head. And whether or not you believe in something like discrete invisible atoms, and I really am not entirely certain that I do, uh, I think there's something to this claim. Like the mind like can't be divided, at least Descartes says. Um, and remember that this sort of mind is just like the thinking mind. And although we can have different thoughts, it's always the same mind that has the different, like maybe conflicting thoughts, but it's one mind that has the thoughts. Like the mind is not, I mean, maybe there are some people where they have say multiple personalities, but even in that situation, each of those minds is one, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, so the next point is uh, weird. It's the one where Descartes says that 
you know, the mind is not immediately affected by the body, just the small parts of the brain. And so some historical context I think would be good here. This is around, you know, like the Renaissance time. People like to think of like Leo da Vinci, like dissecting the bodies, like to make, you know, the paintings. Like people were super interested in anatomy and people were also discovering like nerves, like nerves were the new hot thing. Um, and so, you know, people by dissecting bodies and by like doing experiments with people found that like, well, like, you know, like if we like pinch this nerve that's in someone's hand, the nerve is literally like a string connected all the way up to the brain or the spinal cord or something. And if I touch that nerve, then they feel it. If I don't touch that nerve, they don't feel it. So I think people were starting to realize, well, nerves communicate signals to the brain. And then they did the conclusion that I think we all like to do, which is that the brain is communicating to the mind what's going on. Now, this is the thing that I think people will push on Descartes the most and that I find the most interesting thing that people reject about Descartes. Um, the big question becomes, once you separate the mind and the body, how exactly does the body communicate anything to the mind? Many people are going to really press Descartes on this point and he can't really escape it. Like he... He really, I think this is like the big problem and he doesn't have a good answer. It's not to say that there isn't one or that he couldn't come up with one, but he doesn't. Um, Hobbes, Princess Elizabeth of Bavaria and Spinoza are some example of people who we might eventually read who really push Descartes on this. And I think to get a sense of what they're pushing him on, we have a way of talking about the brain. Um, anyone listening to this who knows me might laugh because I don't know if you know this, Amanda, but I'm really skeptical about the way we talk about the brain. Um, oh, Julian's just coming home now to hear me rant about the brain one more time. <laughs> I basically think, just to put it out there, that the brain is not very different from something like the stomach or the intestines. Like, it's an organ. It's something that if I were to, like, cut open my head and look in a mirror, I would see it. It's an organ. I think we tend to think of the brain as communicating everything to our minds and as, like, making sense of reality and, like, like basically acting like a computer to give us, like, an image of what we see and, like, all that sort of stuff. But what I want to say is like, well, I see the brain though, or like I could see the brain, I, you know, like it's not hard to imagine. Like it's the sort of thing that I would see or I could feel if I like opened my head up and touched it. Like how is what's supposed to be providing me with all the images also an image? Or like how is the thing that's supposed to be grounding everything that I see and experience and feel also something that I could see, experience and feel? So although the brain I think is really important and fundamental, and obviously if you like cut your brain off or stab your brain, you're going to die, or like you can, uh, you can take off particular parts of the brain and you'll no longer be able to do certain things. All that's true. But that doesn't mean that when I see something that my brain is seeing something like I could see my brain, but like I'm seeing something, or it doesn't mean that what I see is a product of my brain in the same sort of way. Basically, I think that, like I said, the brain is similar to the stomach. It's essential. It has a really important role, but, or maybe let's say like the tongue, like the tongue in one sense, maybe does the tasting. It's what like communicates the taste, but you don't taste your tongue or rather like when you're eating something, the flavor you get is not like, it would be weird if I was like, oh, how does that taste? And you started describing how your tongue feels or something like you wouldn't do that. You would use other words right. or like, if I ask you what you see or how you feel and you started telling me like, if I'm like, oh, Amanda, how are you feeling today? And you're like, well, you know, my frontal lobe is really active this morning. Like you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't start describing to me how you feel by doing that. Maybe I should. <laughs> so I I'll just really want to say that. really throw some people for a loop. <laughs> 
So, but this is the sort of thing that people are going to push Descartes on. Like, if you want to just, if you want to talk about thinking and like these sorts of things, it's hard to say how the body can cause that. And someone like Spinoza is going to say, well, we, these are two ways of describing the same thing. Like, if I'm upset, on the one hand, I can talk about what it's like to be upset. I can, you know, write a good poem for you. On the other hand, I can describe what goes on in my body when I'm upset. I can talk about what I feel like, but these are two ways of describing the same thing, but they're not any one of them is causing the other. And so there's a big question because Descartes is here going to say, well, on the one hand, the freedom of the will moves the body in some ways. And on the other hand, the body moves the mind by communicating it, like the sensory stuff to it. And so this interaction between things that are supposed to be completely separate from each other is often referred to in philosophy these days as the hard problem. And I mostly am fond of philosophers who just avoid this problem because I think this problem is maybe one of the reasons that separating the mind and the body is a bad idea. Because once you separate the two, talking about their relationship to each other in a precise, correct way becomes very difficult. Um, like how does like, what, what, when's the leap between when like a nerve signal becomes the feeling of pain? Like these are two completely separate things and you don't see them interact with each other. Like you don't see one link up with the other. So anyway, I think this is like the reason that ultimately I think I want to avoid this separation between mind and body is because I think they're intimately connected and I don't know how you can connect them back together once you separate them, at least the way Descartes does. I like the Spinoza way of approaching this issue. He, he comes right after Descartes and he basically is like, these are two different ways of thinking about things or two different ways of talking about things. And we can talk about the relationship between these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about a causal relationship or that one brings about the change in the other. These are just two different ways of talking about, you know, the same thing, which he's going to say is God, but I mean, that's a whole other issue. Um, so do you have anything to say to that or should I keep going? No, nope, keep going. Okay, we're really close. So whenever one part of a body is moved by another distant part, the same movement can be brought about by moving an intermediate part. This is the, the point that I think is the most confusing and the one that I wanna go over. Um, Basically, the thinker is saying that if A brings about a change in B and B brings about a change in C and D or in C brings about a change in D, it does not matter from the perspective of D whether C was caused by B or some other thing. So I'm going to use an example in case that doesn't make any sense because I'm going fast. So let's think of like a normal chain of events. So say that your dog chews on your shoe and then your dog brings your chewed up shoe to you and then you are sad. Um, now, the thinker's question is, if, say, your dog brings a chewed up shoe to you and you're sad, do you have to conclude that your dog chewed up the shoe in the first place? Maybe a gremlin did it and your dog is just looking out for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, of course, it's probably not the case that a gremlin did it. But the point is that from your perspective, you only see the last few events in this whole big chain of events. And any number of prior events could have led to those last few. And so this is a deep point of, I think, about, like, basically the way the world works, which, and this is important because as we said in the previous point, at least for Descartes, the nerves communicate things to the brain. So you can think of that and then that communicates to the mind. So you could think about that being the last point of the chain of events. The nerves bringing you your brain, the signal is like your dog bringing you the shoe. And then you being sad because you see your chewed up shoe is sort of like the brain communicating to the mind. But there are any number of things that could have caused, say, the nerve feelings that we get. And there's really no way to avoid that. 
like that any number of things can bring about the same change in something is a deep point. And since Descartes says, like, our mind is singular, and since we can only be given like one sort of signal or one sort of event at a time, or at least we can only like consider one sort of event or signal at the time, we have to make conjectures about the events that led up to the ones we're given, if we want to make sense of what happens. It's not a, f a fault in the way we are, it's a fault in the fact, if anything, it's just that we don't know literally every single thing ever. Because we only know from our senses what our body is communicating to us, Descartes says, we have to make guesses about what went on before that. And well, yeah, it makes it more, it makes it easier to comprehend. Like it's harder to comprehend something that makes no sense. My friends and I, we talk about this all the time in life and, you know, in interactions with other people and just whatever. It's like when something happens that to us seemingly makes no sense, you're just like, what is going on? It's so much harder to comprehend it and get over it than it is when you know exactly what happened. Like when you have a specific set of what happened, otherwise there's so much room for speculation. All you do is bring up a million different scenarios in your head about what could have possibly happened. None of which are probably true. And it's just exhausting. Right. And I think, yeah, Descartes going to say that what we usually do is we keep investigating until, and we hope that we find something that seems really likely. Cause at least if it's really likely, we can be like, oh, well, like it was probably that. Cause like, right. yeah, like, Say, I don't know, you saw a person walking out with a child and the child was upset. You might think that the child was being kidnapped, but you might also just be like, oh, they didn't get the toy they wanted. And like the one is much more likely than the other. So you're not necessarily every time you see like someone like holding a child's hand and the child is upset, going to think like, oh, my God, like the worst, you know, like you right. like you were saying, I think. And with things that don't make sense, you really hope you find something that seems likely, because once you find something that seems likely, that's the sort of thing that makes sense. And right. so Descartes wants to say that that's not like a bug. It's not that we're like deceived by the senses necessarily if anything it's like a feature that we can come up with probable guesses that we can that experience teaches us what is most likely so it's much more likely that your dog chewed up your shoe than the gremlin so you're you know you're going to conclude that it's the gremlin yeah um and i mean that or <laughs> you're going to conclude that it's the dog and i mean that's basically all i have um so yeah i mean that's it Let's go Descartes. <laughs> yeah, that was so interesting. It definitely like makes you think differently about everything. I'm excited to see who's next. David Hume. <laughs> <laughs> I like your announcer voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, okay, guys. guys. Yeah, thanks for listening.